All right, we are continuing our study together in our book from the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, and we have now proceeded to chapter 10. Last time when we studied chapter 9, we were looking at the Old Covenant, and we know that the Old Covenant passed away and was replaced by the New Covenant. And so God made the Abrahamic Covenant, Uh, 400 years later, the old covenant was brought in alongside it and ran parallel with it until the new covenant came, the old covenant passed away, and the new covenant became the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And while the old covenant had temporal fulfillments of the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant has the eternal and permanent fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we then talked about the fact that when the old covenant passed away, uh, it wasn't that 100% of it passed away. Uh, What passed away was the ceremonial law, which dealt with the animal sacrifices and and the temple and uh, the priesthood and the fast days and the feast days and all those things. And also what passed away was the civil law, that had to do with the regulation of the national life of Israel as a government and as a governed people. Uh, What did not pass away was the moral law, which was the Ten Commandments, and what did not pass away was the promises that God made to Old Covenant Israel. Those promises now belong to New Covenant Israel, namely Um, believers in Jesus Christ, be they Jew or Gentile, we are all the new Israel. And uh, with reference to the verse that uh, Mastin quoted, um, where he talked about uh, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, um, uh, for you are a chosen generation, you are uh, a holy nation, you are a royal priesthood, Uh, You are God's peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which at one time were not a people, but are now the people of God. And so we have become that new Israel, the new chosen generation, uh, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the people of God's peculiar possession. And so therefore the promises that applied to that former holy nation now apply to this holy nation and to that priesthood now to this priesthood to that people that were God's special possession now to this people who are God's special possession that was an elect nation or an elect nation so in every respect the new covenant community is a new Israel Um, old covenant Israel uh, had all the unbelieving Jews um, removed from the covenant they were given a new covenant and the believing gentiles were grafted in well um, the question then might arise and this leads us into chapter 10 okay if the um, ceremonial law has passed away and the civil law has passed away what good are they to us now why should we even study or read or bother with the parts of the old testament that detail the civil law and the ceremonial law, if they passed away. And so these next couple of chapters are going to deal with the answer to those questions. Why do we study the Old Testament 
in relationship to the ceremonial law in particular, which is the subject of chapter 10. And the author of our book tells us many reasons and excellent reasons why the ceremonial law, even though it doesn't apply to us directly, is still very relevant to us and edifying to us as a source of study. And so what we see in this chapter is that the ceremonial law and the ceremonies it contained were a working model of the salvation that was to come through Jesus Christ and in fact now has come. Now, uh, previously we talked about the old covenant being like scaffolding around the building of the Abrahamic covenant being necessary for its development and progress until the new covenant would come and then the scaffolding was removed away. Well, now the author of our book uses a different illustration he says, we liken the progress of redemption to the building of a great structure. In one sense, we said that the ceremonial laws were scaffolding and braces that were removed from the structure of the new covenant. In another sense, however, they were like a working model of the gospel itself. They portrayed the person and work of Christ in various ways. So what we have in the Old Covenant, and especially in the ceremonial law, as well as the civil law, is a working model of the redemption of Christ and the rule of Christ that was to come. Now, if you've ever worked in the construction trades or in the building trades, uh, the architect draws up plans for a building, and without exception, they build an actual model of the building, a scale model of it. And these things cost sometimes thousands of dollars to produce. They're done exceedingly well. And they're generally on a piece of cardboard that's maybe three feet by five feet or whatever. And, and on it sits the building with all the landscaping and stuff. And it's a model. And the model tells the owner what his building is going to look like. And he and the architect discuss it. And, and if they come to an agreement and they like it, then the building is built. And of course, once the building is built, then you don't have a use for the model anymore because now you have the thing that the model represents. And so this is what the old covenant was uh, in terms of the ceremonial and civil law is it was a working model of the full building of redemption and rulership that Jesus Christ was going to exercise when he came. Now, Eric asked us the question several weeks ago, why did God devote so much of the Bible to uh, the old covenant when it was just going to pass away? You know, we're talking 38 books out of the 39 books in the Old Testament are devoted to the old covenant. And the answer to that is that God's redemption plan is a massive undertaking. It is a very complex thing. And so the model that represented it also needed to be massive and complex to convey to us a picture of all of the facets of that which was to come. And so the Jews needed that because when the reality came, namely the actual person and work of Christ came, they could look at the model and they could look at Christ and what he was doing and say, oh, he is the 
living embodiment and fulfillment of this model that was set before us. He's the temple, he's the priest, he's the sacrifice. And of course, he is the king and the ruler with righteous laws with which he administers his kingdom. And so thus, the civil law and the ceremonial law acted as a working three-dimensional model of the saving deliverance of sinners that would be accomplished by Jesus Christ and of the glorious rule that Jesus would carry out in the kingdom that he came to establish. So what we see is it's not that God brought about the ceremonial law and then just wiped it out, but rather what he did is he brought about the ceremonial law to illustrate what was to come. And when it came, the ceremonial law was then fulfilled. Okay. And so um, it's not like the architect builds a model and then the, the real building is something completely different. No, the real building is a fulfillment of the model, okay? And, and, it's, and, and it carries it out in all of its parts. Now, what the author of our book does is he talks about several ways in which the old covenant modeled uh, the new covenant fulfillment. And he talks about Christ our mediator, Christ our sacrifice, Christ our priest, and Christ our prophet. So these are four ways in which we uh, can look at the Old Covenant and say, oh, this models Christ, that models Christ, the other thing models Christ. And, you know, what we really see when we grasp this concept is that the Bible is a Christocentric book. That is, everything about it points to Jesus Christ. So when you sit down and you read through the book of Leviticus and you read about the priests and the sacrifice and all of that, see it all as picturing Jesus and what he did for us. And as you do so, these old, dry, um, apparently irrelevant passages take on, uh, you know, a very significant and valuable meaning. Um, I was down visiting a friend in Sacramento and his boy asked me, why do we need to know um, about uh, the procedures for dealing with leprosy under the Old Testament. And I was able to explain to him how those things illustrated, you know, cleansing from sin and, 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 um, and care for other people and, and not transmitting disease to others. Um, and, uh, you know, how that uh, those who had these things were to be isolated. And this is a picture of church discipline. And when, when, you, when you understand the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective, it gives it a depth, it gives it a life, it gives it an applicability, a usefulness that makes it extremely edifying to read. And that's why we don't ignore the Old Testament. Um, so what we want to do then is take up um, each of these things and, and talk about them. And today... We want to talk about Christ being our mediator as pictured in the Old Testament. And the way in which Christ as our mediator is pictured in the Old Testament is in the person of Moses. Um, Moses represented Christ as a mediator between man and God. Now let's turn please in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. The book of Exodus chapter 19. Now, 
one of the things we're going to see, of course, and you would expect this, is that while the model uh, represents the finished product in many respects, in many other respects, it falls short of really being able to represent the finished product. And so as we look at these Old Testament illustrations of Christ, they're good illustrations, but they're also inadequate and defective in various respects. And so therefore, as we look at these models of Christ and his redemptive work um, and kingly rule in the New Testament, we have to recognize that uh, there are some correspondences that are valid and there's some that aren't, and therefore we don't push these things too hard. Now, when we look at Exodus chapter 19, um, I just want to briefly read through this chapter and, and see the idea of mediation between Moses, uh, or that Moses carried out between the children of Israel and between God. Notice Exodus 19. And in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, here's the old covenant, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak to the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now, clearly what you see is God isn't talking to the children of Israel and the children of Israel aren't talking to God. God talks to Moses and then Moses conveys what God said to the children of Israel and the children of Israel talk to Moses and Moses conveys what the children of Israel said to God. In other words, he's a mediator between these two parties who aren't talking to each other. Now, the reason why they're not talking to each other and can't talk to each other is because of the distance that is between them. Okay? And so Moses then is acting as a go-between, as a mediator. And he acts as a mediator in two very important respects. He was separate from the people, and yet he was also one of the people. He was separate from the people in that um, God was, was treating him differently from the people, but yet he was one of them and that he was a human being, okay? And so uh, he was um, uh, one who could fully understand the people and fully represent their cause to God. Uh, however, 
he wasn't fully God and therefore couldn't completely understand God and perfectly represent him to the people, though he did represent God to the people because he was God's appointed authorized representative to do so. Okay. And so he pictures Christ who stands between us and God and represents us to God and represents God to us. And thus our memory verse today, there's one mediator between God and man and, and, and that is uh, the man, Christ Jesus. And uh, he's also, of course, the God, Christ Jesus. And therefore, he can fully represent man to God because he is man, something that Moses was able to do. But he couldn't, but, but Jesus is able to fully represent God to man because he is God, something Moses couldn't do. So, for example, uh, turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And uh, <clears throat> we see this dual identity of Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man. Notice, if you will, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what do we know about the Word? We know that the Word uh, is eternal. He was there from as far back as you can go. We know that he's distinct from God because he was with God, thus being a personal distinction between him and God. And yet at the same time, even though he was distinct from God, he was God. So he's eternal, he's distinct from God, and yet he is God. So what we have here, of course, is the expression of the doctrine of the uh, uh, plural unity of God, the, the, the triunity of God. Of course, the Spirit's not mentioned here, but nevertheless. Now skip over to verse 14. It says, And the Word, that is, this God, was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see in verse 1 that the Word is fully God and here we see in verse 14 that the Word became fully man. So he was both God and man and thus a superior mediator to Moses because... Um, of the fact that he could fully represent God to humanity, something Moses was not able to do uh, to the fullest extent um, that he might have because he did not share uh, in God's nature. And so we go on to see in verse 17 where the contrast here now is between Moses and Christ where it says, for the law was given by Moses, that is the old covenant was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And grace and truth here is speaking of the new covenant and all that it contained. Um, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And so his status as a mediator superior to that of Moses's is established because he is fully God and fully man, something that Moses was not. And so being one with us in his humanity 
and being one with God in his deity, the Lord Jesus perfectly manifested the character of God in his words and his ways and he, as he lived among us because he could bring God down to the human level so that we could understand him and see him with our eyes. And so this is the reason why no mere man could ever be the mediator for us because no mere man could truly represent God to us the way Jesus did. Moses did represent God, but he didn't represent him to the degree that was necessary for us to be able to have a relationship with God uh, on the basis of the provision of the Abrahamic and the new covenant. Um, Our author mentions a verse in Job, in Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. Turn there in your Bible if you would. The book of Job, chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. You remember that Job was um, under severe trial. Uh, Job wanted to have contact with God. He wanted to get an explanation from God. And he wanted to represent his cause and concerns to God. But he recognized that he couldn't, in his own person, approach God and have a conversation with God. And so in chapter 9... He gives out this lamentation in verses 32 and in verse 33 where he says regarding God, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and that we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman or umpire or mediator between us that might lay his hand upon us both. And so Job was acutely aware of the need for a mediator between himself and, his, and God, and he didn't know where to find one. He needed to have dealings with God. He knew he couldn't come to God in his own person because God is great, he is small, God's holy, and he's sinful, and therefore there's not a basis for them meeting together. And he says, I need someone to stand between us who could lay his hand on both of us, bring us together and mediate between us, and help me get this problem I've got resolved uh, in terms of, of the perceived uh, injustice of it on his part. So um, there was always this recognition under the old covenant of a need for a mediator. There was a provision of sort of a mediator in the person of Moses, but there was the recognition that even his mediation was incomplete and inadequate. And that's why when Christ became human flesh, uh, without laying aside his deity, there was the answer to Job's cry. Um, I read a book once by G. Campbell Morgan called uh, The Answers of Jesus to Job. And he took about six or seven passages like this out of the book of Job, where Job had cried out regarding an issue and showed how Jesus had met that cry. And this was one of the passages that he used. And I remember reading that book as a young Christian and being so profoundly impacted by the fact that Job needed a mediator and we have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so thus our memory verse today, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, when we consider what is required for a mediator between us and God, 
it becomes clear why the Bible speaks about Christ as the exclusive way of salvation because he alone has both deity and humanity. And that's why nobody else could be a savior. Uh, we read, for example, in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Well, why can't we come to the Father through someone else? Answer, nobody else is suitable as a mediator. Moses wasn't. Job couldn't find one. None of the other religions offer one. I mean, no religion offers uh, any concept of the fact that here is a being who is both God and man and thus is suitable to bring God and man together. And that's why neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12. So, uh, through the mediatory role of Moses, the Old Covenant introduced a vital concept regarding our fellowship with God. The Old Covenant showed us that we needed someone between us and God who, like Moses, communicates God's message to us and who would at the same time be able to represent us to God. And so the Old Testament brought that out. And so we read about Moses and we read about this mediatorial aspect. We go, praise the Lord for that. That's illustrative of Christ. And yet Christ is what? Greater than Moses. And that's what we read about in the book of Hebrews, right? Okay. You remember Hebrews chapter three? Let's just turn there for a second. Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews 3, 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who hath builded the house has more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. So what was Moses? A testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. And what was supposed to be spoken after? Notice the next verse. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so the book of Hebrews goes on to develop the idea that Christ is the perfect mediator between God and man. And so uh, when we see how the author of the book of Hebrews makes use of the Old Testament, it tells us how we ought to make use of it. And thus we see the edificational value of it. But we also see as we look at it, the incompleteness of the provision that it made and why it had to be superseded and why it had to be replaced. But why at the same time, it's not trash. So read the Old Testament, rejoice in the illustrations it provides of New Testament truth 
and recognize that it's designed to point you to Christ and help you understand uh, in some respects uh, the work of Christ in a way that we couldn't if it wasn't there. I mean, look, if Christ just burst on the scene and said, hey, I'm here to stand between you and God and we didn't have the Old Testament, <laughs> we'd say, what, uh, what, where'd this come from? But see, everything Christ did was rooted in the law and the prophets. And that's why he said, think not, I'm come to destroy the law and the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, I'm come to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass away from the law till all be fulfilled. And of course, he was the fulfillment of it. And so it's interesting to me. I've gone into many a building in Sacramento back when I was in the trades and seen in the lobby of the completed building an enclosed glass or plexiglass uh, display stand. And you know what's in it? The architect's model of the building. And you walk in and you look at the architect's model of the building and you realize that's where this came from. And it isn't trash. They don't throw those things away. And in the same way, when we look at the Old Testament, we see, oh, here is an architect's model, the architect's model of the mediation of Christ. Well, next time we'll talk about Christ being our sacrifice and then Christ being our priest and then Christ being our prophet. And of course, his sacrifice, his priesthood and his prophetic ministry are all foreshadowed in the animal sacrifices, the priestly work of the Levitical priests, and the prophetic work of the prophets, people like Samuel and Moses and others who prophesied of, of the truth to come. And so, um, you know, as we see Christ in every page of the Old Testament, you know, as you're reading the Old Testament, saying, ask yourself, what, it, what does this tell me? What is this model that's in the New Testament now? And, and then you read the Old Testament with huge appreciation, huge edificational value. Okay? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the blessing it is to us. And Lord, help us to see the rich gold mine that is there in the Old Testament in which we may see perspectives and illustrations and models of the saving work of Jesus Christ, his prophetic ministry, his kingly rule. Father, we're so thankful that we have a David and we have the greater David in Jesus, that we have Moses and the greater Moses in Christ. And we have the animal sacrifice and, and the greater once for all sacrifice in, in Jesus. We have the Levitical priests and we have uh, the greater Levitical priest, the Melchizedekian priest, Jesus Christ. So Father, give us um, a Christocentric perspective on uh, the Old Testament. And Father, may we gain the value from it that you have left in it for us as we live under the new covenant. Illuminate our minds, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Um, you know, when it says in our memory verse, for there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, have you ever wondered why he didn't say there's one mediator between God and man, the God, Christ Jesus? You know, he, he had a choice to make. He could have said the God, Christ Jesus, or he could have said the man, Christ Jesus. And, and under the inspiration of the Spirit, he chose the word man. And the reason why is because he wanted to extend to us the maximum amount of comfort. And the fact that Jesus was man, he could stand in our room instead. He could understand us. He could be touched uh, with our infirmities and in all points like we are. Um, he understood us and he could truly represent us. And so it's not a denigration of the deity of Christ. It is an establishment and an upbuilding of the comfort of the believer. That's why, I mean, I'm really thankful that Jesus is a man. I'm as thankful that he's a man as I am that he is God. Because if he wasn't a man, he could be no mediator for me. Mike. Um, in verse 3, it talks, um, he says, uh, about our Savior. So, like, like a verse or two before, he talks about how our Savior is God, and then he talks about how Christ is also man as well. So. Yeah, let's look at that. First Timothy chapter 2. Thank you for pointing that out. In verse 3 is the verse Mike's talking about. 1 Timothy 2.3. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so the point Mike is making is that the Savior is described as God in verse 3, and the Savior is described as man in verse 5. So verse 5 isn't a denigration of his deity, it's an exaltation of humanity, which is just as important for our salvation as his deity. Now, we tend to argue really strongly for the deity of Christ because... We live with Jehovah's Witnesses who are always trying to tear down the deity of Christ and Mormons and every cult. Every cult without exception has a defective doctrine of Jesus Christ. And especially of his person, none of them uphold him as God. And so um, we are, are really uh, touchy about the subject of the deity of Christ. And that's fine. Well, we should be. But we need to be equally touchy about the idea of his humanity because that was really under attack in the first century. In 1 John chapter 3, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, but is the spirit of Antichrist. He says, test the spirits and see whether they be of God. And one of the tests are, do they confess the full humanity of Jesus? Because, um, you know, it's uh, half of the Savior. And if you take half of the Savior and throw it away and say he really wasn't man, that's just the same as taking the deity of the Savior and throwing that away and saying he really wasn't God. If you lose either of those in all their fullness, you have lost salvation. Because he couldn't stand between man and God and represent man to God and God to man. All right, you're dismissed.